Well, today we continue our Renew series, uh, and this year our Renew series is, is really a call to return uh, to the basics. Uh, over the last few weeks, we've uh, just gone back to look at the basic calling that God has put upon us to, to pursue knowing Christ in the new year, to see the surpassing work of Christ and the surpassing worth of knowing Christ, and to then give ourselves in the pursuit of knowing Christ more. Uh, that's, that's what God's called us to in the midst of carrying out our mission to multiply disciples who delight in, declare, and display the gospel in all of life and for the good of our community. At the foundation of that is this call to, to know Him, for us to be wrapped up and concerned with that above everything else. As a church, we say often that we want to tre- treasure Jesus above everything, and to, to treasure Him means to know Him and to pursue knowing Him more. And then as we continue to think about what it means to, to know Christ and, and what it looks like as, as God's people to, uh, to, to work out uh, our faith to, to produce a compelling community that God, uh, through faith in Christ, empowered by the Holy Spirit, has given us the community that we enjoy, united together in Christ. We are not like a family, but we indeed are a family. And as God's family, He's called us to be his people who live in the world in such a way that we bear witness to the power of the gospel. And we looked at James 6 and we saw how God's calling us uh, to to be a people uh, who live with accountability, confronting sin in our own lives and, uh, and seeking to restore one another when sin uh, ensnares us and, and seeking to bear one another's burdens, uh, walking alongside and looking to, to help one another along through the challenges and the suffering that we face and, and, and centering ourselves on God's word and walking in personal holiness and, and then looking to do good to one another, to be active, not just in responding passively to the needs that arise, but in actively seeking the good of one another and not only the good of one another, though that's especially what we're called to, the good of all, uh, so that uh, we really would be, as we said, a compelling community who uh, through our faith in Christ and and being centered upon God's word and empowered by the spirit that our life together would bear witness to the gospel, to the power of the gospel, to a watching world. Well, closely following uh, out of of community uh, is is the importance of gathering. Uh, And uh, as we prepare ourselves to begin regathering in person on a weekly basis next week, I thought it fitting uh, for us just to remind ourselves of the, the basics of, of why we gather and what we do as we gather. And Hebrews 10 verses 19 through 25 is where we're going to spend our time. And, and we're going to look at what it means to look to Jesus together, uh, which is foundational to our gathering. Uh, in the book of Hebrews Uh, we find a book that's written to a group of Jewish Christians who were facing persecution, who were facing opposition for their faith in Christ. And and the particular persecution and opposition they were facing was a a temptation to retreat from the, the Christian church and faith in Jesus Christ to return to the external observation of Judaism. Uh, It was a a temptation to go back from following Jesus and return to Judaism because it was easier. You see, in uh, in that time, in the Roman context, Judaism was an accepted religion, whereas Christianity, as it was becoming distinct from Judaism, was looked down upon and was even, in many ways, sought out and persecuted. 
And so it was, it was often easier to, to pull back uh, from the Christian faith into what was a respectable religion in the eyes of the Romans and seek comfort and safety rather than following Christ. Hebrews is written to those believers to encourage them to hold firm to their confession of faith, uh, to see Jesus as the fulfillment of all that God had promised and, and all that we see in the Old Testament. Jesus has fulfilled those things, and through faith in Him, they're given new life. And, and, and Hebrews says, endure. Endure even persecution, even death, because Jesus is worthy. Jesus is better. When you're tempted to turn away from Christ, consider Christ. We don't have time to unpack it all, but, but Hebrews shows us that Jesus is the true and better Moses over the household of God. Jesus is the true and better Sabbath, the rest that we must enter by faith in Him. Jesus is the true and better high priest who represents us before God, not as the priest of old who would die and another would have to come, but one who would live forever. Jesus brings about a better covenant, not like the, the old covenant but a new covenant in which we know Christ and His Spirit dwells within us and His Word is written on our hearts. He's the true and better temple, the place in which we experience the presence of God. He's the true and better sacrifice, not only the high priest who goes into the Holy of Holies to represent us before God, but He Himself is also the once and for all sacrifice that will pay the penalty for our sins. And not only does he lay down his life as our sacrifice, but he rises again and he lives forever to intercede on our behalf. Hebrews 12, 1 through 4 kind of sums up the, the response to all of this. You see, Hebrews does a, a lot what uh, is similar to what uh, the, the letters do in the New Testament, in that Hebrews really 1 through uh, 10 up to our passage lays the, the theological foundation uh, that we just unpacked of, of looking to, to Jesus who is better than all of these things. He's the fulfillment of all these things. He's worthy because of who he is and what he has done. Hebrews 1 through 10 just unpacks that all for us. Uh, you need perhaps a study Bible or commentary sometimes to, to track through some of the things that it says. But as you, as you understand it, as it is unfolded, you begin to get a glimpse of the majesty and the glory of Jesus. The, the image of God, the radiance of God, as Hebrews 1, 1 through 3 will say. And then starting in our passage, it's going to begin to unpack it and say, so what? How do you live in light of that? Hebrews 12, 1 through 4 gives us a good, uh, a good summary of that. It says, therefore... Since we have this great cloud of witnesses, the witnesses mentioned in, in chapter 11, um, the writer says, Let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely to us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Here's the key. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Here it is again. Consider him. Consider Jesus who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. In light of what Hebrews unpacks regarding who Jesus is and what he has done, the latter half of Hebrews tells us 
that we must continually fix our eyes on Jesus. And this perilous moment as a country, we need to be reminded of what we should be about as a church. The church is called to fix its eyes on Jesus. The church must not settle to be merely activists for a particular cause. It must not be content with a quietism that focuses merely on spiritual matters. It must not become an arbiter of public policy. None of these things are our ultimate calling. We must be a people who fix our eyes on Jesus, who bear the reproach of Jesus, who model the way of Jesus, and who live for the kingdom of Jesus. We're Jesus' people. That's what defines us, and that's what marks us. And, and again, as we are Jesus' people, it won't just keep us to a holy huddle. It'll push us out into the world. And if you put a heavenly-minded people with faith in Jesus in the midst of the world, God's plan has always been for that people to change the world without putting their hope in the world. That's what God has called us to it's what we must be. It's how we must live as God's people. It was true then and it's true now. So how do we, how do we live as a people who look to Jesus? But in light of our passage, it's not only our need to, to look to Jesus individually as Christians, but as God's people, as the church, particularly even as we gather together, how can we look to Jesus together? You see, to, to fix our eyes on Jesus means that we are certain of where we find our confidence. Hebrews uh, chapter 10 verse 19 that we'll read here in a moment begins with a therefore. And the therefore points us back to the, to the first 18 verses of chapter 10. And the first 18 verses of chapter 10 speak of Jesus as the once and for all sacrifice. Jesus, who goes into the Holy of Holies and makes the once and for all sacrifice for our sins that paves the way for us to have access to God, to have forgiveness of sins. We look to Jesus because we can look nowhere else and to a people who are tempted to turn away from Jesus for the sake of convenience and comfort, as in the case of the Hebrews the, the writer of Hebrews is saying, if you turn away from Jesus, you're turning away from the forgiveness of sins. You're turning away from having the confidence of eternal life. And so he says in verses 19 through 25, he gives three exhortations, three commands for the church these three commands are to be understood corporately, not merely individually. Uh, though they have all individual implications, um, we see in verses 24 through 25 the, the particular importance of the corporate gathering that comes out. But I believe that this applies to the first two commands that we're, see, we're going to see in verses 22 uh, through 23. We ultimately know uh, that these commands are not just for the individual, but for uh, the corporate people of God because they're the third person plural. They're let us. This is what we are to do together. So we must not only fix our eyes on Jesus individually, but we must fix our eyes on Jesus together. That's what God's called us to be as his people. And so, how do we fix our eyes on Jesus together? 
What does it mean for us to gather together uh, for the sake of fixing our eyes on Jesus? Well, let's look at verses 19 through 25. Read with me God's word. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great High priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our body washed with pure water. Let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. So we have three commands that, uh, that we can see clearly in these verses. In verses 19 through 22, we see that we gather to draw near to God. Verses 19 through 21, in many ways, are a summary of what the author has been saying in the previous chapters. They tell us that Jesus is our great high priest and that Jesus has made a sacrifice for our sins. Therefore, we can draw near with confidence. To enter uh, in with confidence is a is a word that speaks directly uh, to, I think, one of the greatest insecurities and challenges that we all have as believers, uh, the ability to come before God. I think so often we place our confidence in our performance over the past week or maybe uh, on a given day. Uh, our, our past performance is often the best indicator of, of how confident we are before God. If you've been doing well, spending some time in God's Word, you come before God with a greater confidence. And if not, maybe you put it off because you're not sure you really can go before God. Sometimes we, we base our confidence on God and how we feel. Maybe we're just not feeling it. Sometimes it's hard uh, to draw near to God when the cloud doesn't seem like it'll lift. We even allow the way we feel others perceive us sometimes to, to keep us from God. But Hebrews is going to tell us that we can't look to ourselves. We can't look in ourselves or to others to find our confidence. We must find our confidence in Jesus. It says... In verse 19, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus. The blood of Jesus is the sacrifice of Jesus. The death of Jesus on the cross for our sins. In the Old Testament, we saw that there was the continual offering of of bulls and goats They were a sacrifice for the forgiveness of sin, but they were temporary. They required to to be done day after day after day. But Jesus has come, and he is the true and better sacrifice who has offered a single offering, a once and for all offering, which can take away sins forever. And it says because of this, we can enter in with confidence or, or even boldness, a word that, that relates to the freedom that we have because of our new relationship with God. We, we come in, I, I, I love uh, that gif of, if, uh, if you've seen it, LeVar Ball, he's got three sons now who play in the NBA. He, he's just walking with his arms swinging, you know, it's kind of the epitome of confidence. It's just a freedom, strolling in. 
Well, in a way, it's, it's a confidence like that, and yet that confidence is kind of careless and, and prideful. There's this kind of confidence that, yes, is filled with reverence, and, and yet a confidence that's filled with a joy and delight and eagerness to come to God. Because we know it's not about us and our performance, but it's about what Jesus has done that gives us access. And it's a coming into the presence of God, the, the holy place, the holy of holies is where on one day a year, one man could enter to make atoning sacrifice for the sins of Israel. Well, through Jesus' sacrifice, the curtain was torn in two and, and no longer was there a barrier between the people and the presence of God. But now there is a doorway in Jesus, the one through whom we must enter into the presence of God. That's what it says, that a new and living way has opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh. It was new because before we were cut off. And it's living because Jesus not only died, but he rose. Now, the presence of God is open to all who would come through Jesus. And as Hebrews often does, it shows us that Jesus is not only that once and for all sacrifice, but also the, the high priest, as it says in verse 21, since we have the great high priest over the house of God, you could look in Hebrews 4, 14 through 16 to see how we have a high priest who sympathizes with us. He's like us in every way, yet without sin. Therefore, we can draw near to him in our time of help and find grace. But it says in Hebrews seven twenty five, I love, consequently, Jesus is able as a high priest who lives forever to save us to the uttermost, those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. It's through our great high priest, through Jesus, that we draw near to God. And verse 22 speaks to the work of redemption that goes beyond the outward temporary rituals of Judaism. And instead, those who believe in Christ have been cleansed from within. It says in verse 22, we draw near then to God with a true heart and full assurance of faith. That's the confidence that we have through faith in God and the work that Christ has done for us. With our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed, with pure water. The, the washing rituals of purity that mark the old covenant of being able to be acceptable before God, being able to come into the temple and offer prayer and worship, now has been done in a way that goes beyond the external. It's been done internally, that our consciences have been clean. And I think that the reference there at the end of 22 is ultimately going to t connect to 23, a reference to baptism, which is this outward expression of the inward reality of what God has done in us through faith in Christ. When we gather, we draw near to God because of the work of Jesus. And we have to ask ourselves, what, what implication, or in what way, when we gather, do we draw near to God? How, how does this play out? Well, the importance of, of this reminder, the reason that it goes beyond just the individual, that, that individually we can draw near to God, which no doubt we must certainly do, it goes beyond that to, to, to speak to what happens when we gather together and draw near to God and worship. It reminds us that when we gather we gather not as a people perfected, but we gather as saved sinners in need of drawing near to God 
through the blood of Jesus. That's what's taking place. When a church gathers, its people are not perfected saints. They're saved sinners who need to draw near to God by virtue of the blood of Jesus. The church should be the place where we drop the pretense. The church should be the place where it's okay to not be okay. The church should be the place where we have no need to pretend. No need to act like we have it all together. No need to cover up the burdens we bear. No need to cover up our struggles. To act as if we're without sin. To put on a smiling face and grin and bear it. No, the church is the place that we come particularly aware of who we are and our need for God. I love how Diedrich Bonhoeffer puts it in Life Together. He says, Many Christians are unthinkably horrified when a real sinner is suddenly discovered among them. And he's talking even about a believer. He says, So we remain alone with our sin, living lies and hypocrisy. The fact is, we are sinners. But it is the grace of the gospel, which is so hard for the pious to understand, that it confronts us with the truth and says, You are a sinner, a great desperate sinner. Now come as the sinner that you are to the God who loves you. He does not want anything from you, a sacrifice, a work. He wants you alone. God has come to save the sinner. And when we gather as God's people, we draw near to that God, that God who saves sinners through the blood of Jesus. And it's what we need to remind ourselves of on a weekly basis, lest we forget that we are a great sinner and that we have a great Savior. And it's also why as we gather together, we bear witness to anyone who doesn't know Christ to anyone who may be entangled in their sin without the hope of forgiveness, for anyone who may be uncertain and unsure, fearful of facing a holy God in eternity. This is the, the reason that we preach a message of Jesus Christ crucified, that we are sinners in need of God's forgiveness, that we can't save ourselves, that we can't look to ourselves or our performance to get us to God and to heaven, but that God looked down upon us and not only looked down, but came down and came down and took on flesh and lived among us a perfect life that none of us have. He died a death that all of us deserve to die and he rose again. And because he rose again and is coming again, he calls everyone everywhere to turn from their way, their sin, and put their trust in him. So if that's you, if, if you've done the church thing, if you're familiar, or maybe you're hearing it for the first time, somehow randomly you got this YouTube link or stumbled across this on Facebook and you don't yet know Jesus Christ. Maybe you've got a friend at TCC. Maybe you've attended TCC for a while, and you've heard this 500 times. Well, let the 501st time be the time that you open your heart to receive Jesus Christ as your Savior. It's not magic. God calls us to put it in our own words to say to Him, to confess our sin, that we need Him, to, to repent, say, I'm turning from that. I see it. I don't want to live for myself and my sin anymore. I turn from it, God, and I turn to you. I believe you died and you rose from me. 
and forgive me of my sins, God. I give my life to you. Help me to follow you. And if you prayed that prayer or want to pray that prayer, want to talk to somebody about what that means, we would love to know so that we can talk with you and even rejoice with you in following Christ. We draw near to God with confidence as God's people through the blood of Jesus. It's exactly what we need as individuals as we draw near to God and receiving his word. Yes, we, we want to draw near to God at home with his word open and our head bowed in prayer, but we also draw near to God together when we gather as a local church. Hebrews tells us because of the work of Christ, in order to live with our eyes fixed on Jesus together, we draw near to God. We gather to draw near to him. But secondly, we also, we gather to hold fast our confession. Hebrews 10, 23 goes on to say, Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Some commentators take the last part of verse 22 that references, as you can see there, how our bodies were washed with pure water as a reference to, um, as to going together with verse 23 and as, in, as a reference to baptism, when we profess faith in Christ publicly. As it says, when we um, <clears throat> make the confession of our hope, this is what happens when we are baptized as a believer, that we, we profess or we confess where our hope lies, that we put our hope in Jesus Christ and we want others to know. And through baptism, we visibly demonstrate what has happened to us internally when we have died to Christ in baptism, buried with him in the likeness of his death, died to sin with Christ in baptism, buried in the likeness of his death and raised to walk in newness of life. The author of Hebrews is writing to these Jewish Christians who no doubt upon their conversion were baptized and entered into a fellowship in the family of God and the church. And now they're being tempted to turn away from Christ in the Christian church. And he's writing saying, remember when you publicly professed Christ. Remember when you confessed that your hope was in him and that Jesus was the Messiah, the once and for all sacrifice for your sin. Don't forget what God has done. Don't forget where your hope lies. Don't turn away. Hold fast your confession without wavering. But it can be, it can be hard sometimes to hold on to uh, that confession, to be lured away. And that's what he's calling them to do, not to be lured away. And what he says in the latter half of verse 23 is an encouragement that we all need to hear. I don't care how long you've been a follower of Christ. We need to, to hold fast our confession. But friends, I want you to know that we can hold fast our confession because he who called us is faithful. He who calls us is faithful. That's where uh, our problem, that's where our hope is, is that God is faithful, that the one who uh, is promised is faithful. The good news is that we hold fast, not because we're confident in our strength, but we're confident in the one who has a hold of us. And we draw uh, and we gather together to hold fast our confession because it's when we gather together, we're reminded of that confession that we share with one another. And we're reminded of the God who has a hold of us. 
I miss gathering together for worship when I see another believer who I know has had a difficult week or is walking through something difficult and I see them there praising God. When I see a believer eager and hungry to grow in God's word and they've got God's word open and they're taking those notes, I miss the the rustling of the pages of scripture that remind us that our hope isn't found outside uh, in the world or inside. It's something in us, but it's found in God's word and what Jesus has accomplished for us. It's it's when we uh, raise our voices together and we hear the voices of God's people giving the praise that he's due, even when I don't feel it, when I hear hear your voices, I'm reminded that we gather to hold fast to our confession. When I take the Lord's Supper, I remember that it's not my work, but Jesus's work. When I see another believer baptized, I'm reminded of that day, almost for me 20 years ago, when I professed faith in Christ. God has held on to me as I've sought to hold fast to my confession to him. That's why we gather together. And If I can speak candidly, though, I I do want to press in and challenge us in light of our particular moment, because I think where we are tempted today isn't so much in this moment that we would turn away from our confession, but that we might compromise our confession. We can compromise our confession in a multitude of ways. Uh, Personally, we can do this uh, when we allow sin to go unchecked and unrepented of. We can do this when we become complacent and indifferent to our spiritual condition, just kind of coasting and then drifting. Uh, it, it's, it's easy for us to compromise our faith. However, I believe what I saw on Wednesday is perhaps one of the most egregious ways in which our confession can be compromised. I don't know if you saw the pictures of the cross being raised at the Capitol. I saw the story of Al Jazeera sharing the news of the riot at the Capitol and their their picture. The news for a majority of Muslim world that went out was a cross being raised at the Capitol as rioters stormed the Capitol. I saw there at the Capitol... Jesus 2020 flags, the Christian flag, and a site that didn't even happen during the Civil War, the Confederate flag flying proudly in the United States Capitol. A flag that's a symbol of hatred and racism and frankly for too long was defended by those who bear the name of Christ. this melding of the Christian faith and political partisanship. One rioter who would ultimately be shot by the police after trying to break through a window into the speaker's lobby retweeted the day she arrived in D.C., landed in D.C., here to do God's work, save the republic, hashtag stop the steal. As I saw this, as I hear this, I grieve. We should grieve as God's people. We should lament when the name of Christ is stained because of conspiracy theories, because of blind allegiance to our current president and lies about what would change the outcome of the election. 
I'm not talking about the need for election reform. I'm not talking about how you voted one way or the other. I'm talking about the particular melding of the Christian faith and, uh, and what took place at the Capitol on Wednesday for many people who thought they were bearing the name of Christ. To be sure, our faith must inform our politics. That's much easier said than done. But it's essential that Christians engage in politics, even running for office locally at the state level, nationally. All of that is important, true, and good. You've heard me say, and I'll always say, I care not as much about who you vote, but how you treat one another as God's people before and after you vote. However, no political party should be able to claim the church as its own. No political party should be baptized with the Christian flag, nor should we consider the Christian who votes differently than us our enemy or the enemy of our nation. See, I believe once that happens, the inevitable outcome for the church is that we would compromise truth and justice for the sake of political expediency and political power. Far too often... That is what has happened. That's what's been done in our country. We should lament this. We should repent wherever our allegiances have become misaligned. And we should commit ourselves to honestly rethinking about how we engage in politics and how we engage in political discourse asking that God would help us to bear witness to him, not baptize our preferred political party in the name of Christ. We need to remind ourselves of our confession. I'm not here to offer pointers on politics. I'm here to remind you that your confession, the confession of our hope is in Jesus Christ. I was struck by what a pastor, uh, Dr. Derwin Gray, pastor in South Carolina, he put it this week. He said the early church was a mixture of Jews and Gentiles, had no political power, Rome ruled. There was no Christian Supreme Court. They had no cultural power. They were persecuted by both Jews and Gentiles. They had no economic power, but they had the love and the power of Jesus. And in the first three centuries, the church grew at a rapid pace because I believe they were confident and they held fast to the confession of their hope that was in Christ and how we must return again and again as God's people to Jesus, to fix our eyes on Jesus, to model the way of Jesus, to bear the reproach of Jesus, to live for the kingdom of Jesus. We gather to hold fast our confession to remind us of where our true hope lies. And that way, as we gather together, that God would strengthen us not to waver from our hope. And then ultimately, in verses 24 through 25, we see that we gather to encourage one another. Hebrews 10, verses 24 through 25. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. 
we gather together to encourage one another. See, the necessity of gathering is, is not put upon the preaching of God's Word, though uh, the preaching of God's Word is central to the gathering of the church. We see that in the Scriptures. We see that in the history of the church. The emphasis is put upon our need for one another. Look at, look at what it says again. Let us consider, the emphasis should consider one another how to stir one another up to love and good works. He contrasts not neglecting to gather with encouraging one another. He says, don't neglect to gather as is the habit of some, but encourage one another. When we gather, we're to consider one another to this end. The author of Hebrews says, to stir one another up to love and good works. And, and so what it's saying here isn't just a spontaneous act of of showing love or doing good to one another. It's something beyond that. There's an intentionality. There's a deliberateness with what we do when we gather. We're to consider one another. We ought to be thinking about each other, even by name, knowing the particular circumstances of our life, so that we can consider how to do spiritual good to one another, to stir one another up to love and good works. It's yes to love one another, yes to do good works to one another, but how to push one another along in doing love and good works. How to spur one another. It's kind of the word is actually the same word that references the divide, the rift that Paul and Barnabas had when they were uh, on their missionary journeys. But here it's used in a positive sense to, to stir up, not in a bad way, but in a good way to love and good works. We should perceive struggles and see how we might help. We should notice weariness and absence and reach out to see how we can pray. We should note gifting and encourage serving. We should serve together. We should look for ways that we might minister together to neighbors, to co-workers. How we could study God's word together. How we could help one another think through difficult topics. How good it would do for us to, uh, to not talk politics like the world does, but to, to talk politics with a commitment to one another as brothers and sisters in Christ, to, to navigate uh, difficult decisions that we're making in our life and encouraging one another to think about how we can be faithful to God in the midst of the circumstances that God gives us. Consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, but encouraging one another. See, the reality is gathering together, being with other people can be tough. I know for me over these last, this last year as we've navigated uh, being at home and, and have been forced to be at home, often isolated, it's particularly discouraging to, to not have the, uh, the encouragement of another believer um, and just of others uh, around you to, to see them worshiping God, to have those conversations, to check in uh, on one another. Of course, we can do all those things um, virtually, and, and God has sustained us and allowed us to do that, but there's, there's something particularly um, reflective of how we can do that when we gather uh, that, that the, the book of Hebrews is bringing out. And yet, if we're honest, there is something that's sometimes nice about not being around people because when we're around other, other people, there's differences. We rub one another the wrong way. Sometimes we annoy each other. We don't like that particular person or we don't like how they do this or that. 
Sometimes it can just be a desire. We don't want to be with one another. All of these things are there. Sometimes over the holidays, we're reminded of those challenges with family. Maybe there's differences in your family that you experience and you don't want to always be around each other. You want time apart. It's just easier not to have to get together with some people. And as the family of God, as the church, we have a warning here that we can't neglect one another. We can't neglect to gather because if we neglect to, get, to gather, we're neglecting our own soul. We're missing the opportunities for others to stir us up to love and good works. And if you've committed yourself to a church, by you not gathering, you're neglecting your brothers and sisters in Christ, failing to consider them and how to stir them up to love and good works. One commentator said that this teaching reminds us that the church's defects, those challenges I was talking about, are by design. They present us an opportunity for earnest prayer, for careful thought, for loving discussion and united action to correct the deficiencies and not to run away from them. Don't neglect to gather, but encourage one another towards love and good works. May God help us to do that in this new year. And we find ourselves at a unique time. Gathering together during this time isn't normal. A typical application of this passage might be uh, to challenge us not to be lured into spending our weekends up north and at brunch with friends or going uh, to the ball field with our kids every Sunday or sleeping in because uh, we had a long week or the game went long last night. It might be reminding you that Sunday morning is a Saturday night decision, that we commit ourselves to make uh, time and prepare ourselves to gather with God's people. But as we begin to regather in person next week, they, these aren't those times. Uh, some of those things aren't even possible for us to do. <clears throat> we're regathering because we believe we can do so safely because we're committed to doing so safely and are thankful for the feedback many of you have given us and are even seeking to apply that in this coming week so that we can be as proactive and careful and intentional as we can. We recognize the time before and after the service when we often are socializing that it can be the time where we're least um, as aware and as careful with our social distancing and our, our masks. Uh, we, we are going to be encouraging after service for everybody to depart into the lobby uh, for any conversation where we'll have the doors open to the outside to increase airflow uh, as one of those precautions. We'll as well give reminders, of course, about those things, but are seeking to even find ways to be intentional uh, to help us as we gather. But, but hear my heart uh, as I challenge us in this new year as we gather together. I speak for both myself and Pastor Chris. We want you to gather to worship. We want you to gather in person to worship. We believe we need to gather to worship. We believe God has faithfully sustained us during this time as we haven't providentially been able to gather. We believe that we've been faithful to come up with as many creative ways as we can to have as much time together as we can. And we also want you to know that we understand if you're not ready. We are committed to walking with all of our people, all those who uh, have uh, committed themselves to TCC or are interested in TCC. We care and we want to know 
that you're not ready. And we want to be able to walk with you and pray for you as well as stay connected with you, especially as we gather back in this rhythm. Uh, we know that, uh, that the, the gathering together, being all together, takes on a particular time and, and energy that's given to that. We don't want to neglect or allow any uh, person to fall through the cracks. And as I said, we'll be making Facebook alive, making available Facebook Live as we gather. You'll get a live shot of our worship and our preaching. And we want you uh, to be a part of that if you're not yet ready to come. I, I want to encourage you, don't, if you are part of TCC, give yourself to gathering with TCC during this time, not uh, doing something else and then coming back to it later. If you at all can, uh, make it a priority to, to gather even virtually during that time. But know that we love you and are committed to walking with you wherever you're at in that regard. And yet, as we begin to regather, we recognize that we also have committed ourselves to other rhythms and, and habits of not gathering. And we want to challenge you not to allow convenience, lethargy, or got to get ready for work on Monday mentality to keep you from gathering with God's people. We gather to encourage one another. We need one another. We must look to Jesus together. Gathering, it's so basic, so fundamental, and yet it's been torn from us over this last year. I know on March 8th, I was just going through uh, the rhythm of preparing a sermon and setting up at Bi Elementary and doing church. Even as a new church, we had already developed somewhat of a rhythm. I'll never again take it for granted. Never again to come into the presence of God with God's people to draw near to God, holding fast to the confession of our hope and seeking to encourage one another to love and good works. That's what we need in the new year as God's people. That's what I'm praying God strengthens and sustains us to do as we head into 2021. And for those who are able, I can't wait to see you next Sunday as we gather together to fix our eyes on Jesus. And whether you're in person or virtual, together as a church family, we're committed uh, to making disciples who delight in, declare, and display the gospel in all of life and for the good of our community. And I pray as we close uh, this time uh, and our, um, <clears throat> anticipate coming together next week, that, that you just begin to evaluate your own commitment to Christ as we've been talking over these past weeks. Do you see the surpassing worth of knowing Christ? Are you committed to knowing Him more this year? How's perhaps the Bible reading going uh, already as we've begun this year? How, how are you doing prioritizing time and prayer, family worship? We'll have our Jesus Kids Club kicking back off in February. Just evaluate those things in your life. How, how are you doing when it comes to thinking about community, your commitment to a small group? Are you committed? Are you eager to jump back in in February when we start our small groups back? Is God calling you to, to step up to consider a leadership as a, as a small group leader, apprentice leader, as we look to, to continue to deepen community in our small groups and, and, and start new small groups? And then this week, What's your commitment to, to God's church as we gather together in this new year? How can we pray for and support one another in these unique times and yet be faithful to the mission that God has entrusted to us? Let's pray. 